Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Gold Star, was recorded live at Inside Out Gallery in Traverse City, Michigan in October 2015. In our first story, Leslie Tai tells us that she was surprised that at a school with a diverse and accepting student body, a haircut would lead to bullying. So um, my story is about uh, my first year as a head teacher, um, which was um, the hardest year of my teaching career, maybe for reasons you wouldn't expect, some reason you wouldn't expect. Um, but uh, my career is now 17 years, so I've had a few years. Um, and I've told a few stories about this year, actually. It was definitely a memorable year. Um, I knew it was going to be hard going into this school um, because of just kind of extra hours, the expectations of this particular school. But what really attracted me to it was that it was the most diverse student body that I've ever worked with and, and ever have since. Um, it was very different than the WASPy um, private school that I had just been an assistant teacher at for two years. So I was really excited. Um, I, was, uh, I got a job as a, a head teacher in the fourth grade, language arts teacher. Um, it, was, it was another private school, but it was in Hancock Park, and most of the parents worked two or three jobs just to try and make enough money to pay the monthly tuition for their kids to not be in private or in public school, to be in this, public, in this private school. So um, my fourth grade class, um, 20, 24 students, I had two different sections, and of all those students, only five were Caucasian. So again, it was very ethnically diverse. Two of my kids were actually straight off the plane from South Korea and spoke no English, and there was no ESL program at the school. So this is like my first time dealing with a, you know, language difference. Um, and, um, but I was just really excited about it. I was like, this is my mission is gonna be to like focus on tolerance and acceptance and respect and I'm gonna make this classroom environment just all about this diversity and celebrating it. It's like true American melting pot. So, um, you know, I started the year with a, a book about a boy who was blind and um, all the students had, and had to, or had become blind and had to relearn everything and all the students had to like do blind experiments at home, eat their dinner blindfolded and write about it. I wanted to literally put them in somebody else's shoes and I really focused on cooperation. All the kids work together to try and, you know, make sure everybody's homework is in and um, you know, they would get these homework on time tickets and, and work to get points to have parties on Friday afternoon. And I remember the first time that Ashley, that was her American name, one of the South Korean students, she got a, her first 100% on a spelling test. And the whole class just erupted in applause, like unprompted by me. They were so excited for her. And um, a month into school, because this school started in August, um, very early August, um, I woke up along with the rest of the nation to airplanes flying into buildings. And um, you know, now I'm thinking, wow, this is gonna be a challenge. How do I navigate you know, dealing with 9-11 with my students and you know, being a teacher with them? And when one of my kids pointed to a map of the Middle East and said, this is where the terrorists come from, I was like, okay, I, need to <laughs> I really need to focus on this even more. So we did a unit on everyday heroes and um, 
in November for Thanksgiving, we all had a heritage celebration and students brought you know, diff dishes that represented their heritage and we learned about all the different holidays in December. And I wrote a peace medley for them to perform with a rap section and all the kids got their special little moment. And by the end of the semester, I was really like patting myself on the back. In fact, I had a child psychologist come to observe one of my students that had some pretty severe learning differences. And he told me that never in his career had he seen a class that was so cooperative and supportive and caring of each other. So I'm like, all right, gold star for me, right? I did it. I am awesome teacher. And then January came, and along with it, I got a new student. And in fact, he was put in my class because, you know, my, my principal was really impressed with me and what I was doing. He was nine, his name was Nicholas, and he had a mullet. And I should explain that this wasn't, this was more of like the spiky on top, kind of long and back, like, you know, Rick Springfield, 1980s mullet. Like, actually, I thought it was kind of cool. Like, it definitely made me nostalgic for, you know, banana clips and leg warmers. And he loved his haircut. Like, you could tell he was really proud of it. It was his best feature. But it was different. And um, it was kind of an easy thing for the kids to pick on. And, and in a lot of ways, it was kind of his best feature. He, he was the kid who, you know, blurted out answers and didn't raise his hand. And he was very distracting. And he had some personal boundary issues that he, you know, did, got in people's face a lot. And, um, you know, the main thing, though, is that he just hadn't been there from the beginning. He hadn't done all these activities with us and kind of created this environment, so he was an outsider. And right away, you know, not in front of me, but behind me, you know, for sure, they just started picking on him, his hair, you know. They started calling him Joe Dirt or, you know, you look like a girl or your hair smells, why don't you wash your hair? And I just, I couldn't believe it, you know? Like, how could these kids who were so supportive just start to attack him? And I, you know, it started, like, I was like, I gotta get on top of this, you know? I was calling my mom a lot. She's an educational therapist, and she's like my teacher sounding board still. Um, you know, trying to get ideas, um, talking to students individually, talking to them in groups, trying to figure this out. I'm, I'm like trying to make parallels to our um, studies in civil, civil rights and, you know, talking about and how everybody should treat, be treated equally. I mean, sometimes I'm even direct with the kids. Like, what, what, what do you not like about Nicholas? You know, and they'll tell me, oh, because he's distracting me in a test. And I said, but why are you picking on him for his haircut? But it just didn't get better. I mean, by the end of February, like, all my students are on these behavioral contracts and it seems like things are getting worse. And the more that they pick on him, the more Nicholas is like adamant about trying to like make them like him, you know? And so he's, and I'm getting complaints from parents that he's following kids into the bathroom stall and just bugging them all the time. And, you know, suddenly there's more issues. His math book is, you know, lost and we find it in the trash can and nobody knows you know his calculator is smashed on the ground and somebody has an orange takes an orange and you know smears it all over his locker every day it seems like Nicholas is outside the principal's office you know for either something somebody did to him or something he's done and I just felt like such a complete failure you know as a teacher like somehow I created this environment where 
they all accepted each other, but an outsider coming in, all I could see was his differences. And it kind of culminated in um, my first fight ever. It wasn't in the classroom. I wasn't there. It was in the bathroom. But one of the kids gave him a swirly in the toilet. And I just I felt so awful. I remember sitting outside of the principal's office with him. And, and I mean, the kid who'd done it apparently had a history of it. He was actually the PE teacher's kid, which is great. And, um, you know, I kind of found out that this was not the first time he'd done this kind of thing. But I still, again, I felt like I'm failing this kid. I'm, I, don't, I don't know how to deal with this. And I remember Nicholas was like, I don't get it. I like my hair. Even my mom thinks it's cool, you know. And I was like, I, I wanted to tell him that I had a mullet when I was in middle school, but I thought he might take that the wrong way. So, but I was like, but I, I was like, I think it's cool too. I was like, it's your hair. Like, be proud of it. So it was late March, right before spring break, and um, I, I uh, had early morning playground duty and came on the playground. There's only a few dozen kids playing, and I see Nicholas, and he's playing with some of the second and third graders basketball. And so I walk up to him to say hello, and it wasn't until I got closer and he turned around that I saw he finally cut his hair. And I just, something in me just dropped. I just, it was like physical. I felt so awful. He'd finally changed this thing about him to try and fit in. And, you know, after that, in a, in a lot of ways, things did get better. I mean, he didn't have something obvious for them to pick on. And, and he, you know, it just it kind of felt like he just lost a little bit of himself. He didn't smile as much, you know. He didn't try so hard. He kind of fit in, he kind of found this group of kids, these younger kids that, that he fit in with and, and looked up to him and he hung out with them on the playground and just didn't really try to make friends with the other kids anymore. And I just, again, I just felt like I failed. So after spring break, we had our big spring musical in April, um, musical show, and so I really wanted to do something fun and joyful and, and try to bring them together. And so I rewrote the words to Proud Mary so we'd be rolling down at Page School, and I sewed, you know, fringe costumes for all the girls and taught them Tina Turner dance moves, and the boys all had sunglasses and sparkly ties, and I made these cardboard cutout um, instruments for them to play. And I gave Nicholas one of the coveted guitars because I was like, this is his moment. And I remember watching them perform and, uh, you know, he's up there and he's like rocking side to side, slightly offbeat. And I could just like for a second, I could just imagine his mullet, you know, back behind him just swinging along with him. I was like, he was a rock star for just a moment. And um, we got to the end of the year. It was a good year. It was my first and last year at the school, and I, I really don't know what happened to any of those kids. Um, but I really hope that wherever Nicholas is now, that he's rocking his mullet. That's my hope. Thank you. In our next story, Janelle Bowers recognizes that she was at a low point when she hurt a few people. First of all, I want to set the stage a little bit. So this took place 10 years ago. Um, there are three characters that we need to keep in mind in this story. One is me. I am 23-year-old, alcoholic, uh, extremely self-hating, depressed woman, me. Character two, Nancy. 
Nancy is what we refer to as a gold star lesbian. I don't know, anybody know what that is? So a gold star lesbian is a lesbian that's never been with a man. Um, Nancy is about 24 years old. She's adorable, lovely, lovely girl. There is character three, <clears throat> uh, Chema Salinas, who is now a, a, a doctor of communications. He's a, he's a college professor. At the time, though, he was just sort of a floundering musician. Um, who is really smart and very talented, but about maybe 5'8", really stocky, very, very Mexican man. So that, those are the three characters we need to keep in mind when listening to this story. So I was just going through a divorce at the time. Um, I had been married to a woman. She, her name was Bliss. Um, she left me sort of out of the blue for a woman named Joy. And so I was obviously a mess. Uh, after that happened, I was a, I was a disaster area. Um, and so I did what any reasonable self-loather does, and that is bury myself in as much sex and alcohol as I possibly could like get my hands on. Um, the thing about being a 23-year-old alcoholic is that um, people don't really notice because like everybody else is partying and they don't notice that like, you've had three cocktails and she's had like 10 cocktails and she's still talking and stuff. Um, so nobody really knew how bad off it was. Um, so Nancy didn't either. Nancy was this really lovely girl. She found me on MySpace, if that tells you anything about the time that we were in. Um, her her uh, like name on MySpace was Little Latin Boy in Drag. She was uh, like 5'2 and like 95 pounds and just adorable. And she had like in college like worked in a sex shop and like taught these really like positive sex workshops. And she had recently like relocated back to Sacramento and served as like an advocate for rape victims, like a liaison between the police department and um, the hospital staff. She's a really great girl and she, she liked me. Um, because I could like keep my shit together for long enough to like go on a date for a night, you know? And she, she kind of didn't no notice that I was a total disaster. So I hated myself so much that I just like didn't let people close enough to like really figure that out. So we had been dating for about three weeks. Um, she came over to my house. I made her this really lovely dinner. We, we ate, we shared a bottle of wine and by shared, I mean she had like a glass and I had the rest of the bottle. Um, we had sex, she went to sleep. She was a respectable girl with a job that she had to go to in the morning. Um, so she, she fell asleep. I got up, I went and sat on my stoop with my, my uh, roommate. Here enters character three, Chema, who I had been sleeping with that no one knew about for about six months. Um, he walked by the house, I'm sitting there, he said, hey, and we sat down and we, we chatted. <clears throat> we had this great arrangement where like, we weren't attached to, other, to each other's lives, but we would walk his dog and we would like debate existential literature and we would drink whiskey and then we would have lots of sex and then I would leave and like not call him and it was just this, this whole mess and deny that any of it was happening. So Chema comes over. He stops by, we walk to the party store, we buy a bottle of whiskey and a 12 pack of Pabst and we sit on my stoop and we drink it. So I lived in the basement of this big Victorian and it had a wraparound porch. Chema and I are sitting there, we're, we're
we're talking, we're listening to the Beatles, we're having a great time. He doesn't know that Nancy is asleep in my bedroom. Um, so there's that. So at some point in the evening, what happens with us happens. Uh, we like start making out and then we go up and we, there's a futon kind of up against my upstairs neighbor's bedroom window. Um, and we start fucking on this futon. It's about 2.30 in the morning. And I hear a, could you not fuck on my porch now, please? And we're like, oh shit, the, the neighbor, fuck. They grab all of our clothes and we run downstairs and we throw them all over the living room. By the way, my roommate is home and sleeping like in the room that's adjacent to the living room. So we like finish having sex, we run into the bedroom and kind of just collapse into bed, naked, with Nancy. <laughs> that Gemma didn't know was there. And Nancy is now in bed naked with a stocky, uncircumcised Mexican man. She has never even kissed a man. So <laughs> I don't even, I, like, I have no idea whether she woke up then or she woke up and was like, what the fuck is it? Who is this guy? Like, I have no idea what happened at that after that point. But I woke up in the morning and I was like, you know, the foggy haze of hangover. And I look around and I, like, okay, Chema's here. That's not that weird. Usually we don't do this at my house, but whatever. I get up, I, I put my robe on, I go into the living room, and I see the clothes everywhere, and I'm like, Chema, oh, fuck, dude, the, the neighbor. And he's like, oh, God, the neighbor. And then I'm sort of walking around, like, going to make coffee, and I look down at the table, and there's a note on the table. It says, Janelle, it got weird. <laughs> Nancy <laughs> and I sort of sat down and uh, thought about that needless to say I never saw or talked to Nancy ever again <laughs> um, I lost the gold star as it were um, and thinking about writing this story made me you know I it's a when Karen talked to me about it, it was the only Gold Star-themed story I could think of. That's a really funny story, I think. Um, but the thing that I was the most brought to was that to do something like that, I didn't like myself so much that I couldn't imagine that I could be hurting Chema, who's still a, a good friend of mine, um, and I couldn't imagine what it would do to her because I couldn't think about the fact that someone might actually care for me enough that my actions could affect them. And so thinking back on the story, which I've always just sort of thought about as like, oh, that was this crazy time in my early 20s and whatever, I am actually brought to see how far I've come from that point um, and see that I, you know, I don't, go fucking little Mexican men with a woman in my bed and then get everybody all mixed up together <laughs> anymore. And that's a really good thing. Um, but so there it is. That's how you lose a gold star in three weeks. <laughs> Being
being academically gifted doesn't necessarily earn you gold stars if you're lazy, Catherine Henning Callison tells us. I have always been able to achieve academically without having to try very hard. Um, which is a long way to say that I have an inclination towards laziness. I do. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, I, I continue to get gold stars without trying, which is not the greatest extrinsic motivation to do better. Um, in fact, when I graduated high school, I only uh, was accepted to one college, despite my, my academic achievements, because I had only applied to one. And my careful vetting process was, do I need to write an essay? <laughs> then no. So I, <laughs> I only applied to MSU, uh, James Madison College, which is an excellent school. It surprisingly does not require an essay. Uh, but I decided to take a year off to travel. <laughs> we all know, know that cliche. It's a lot really a lot of working and trying to convince older friends to buy you beer. <laughs> and a year went around, and, and as is my natural inclination towards laziness, I never got around to applying to schools again. So it looked like it was going to turn into two years. But uh, MSU, out of the goodness of their heart, sent me another acceptance letter based on the former year's application. And so I thought, why not? This takes little to no effort on my, on my part. It's gold. <laughs> so I, in college, also um, did as well as I was accustomed to doing academically without, without really trying. Uh, I was invited after freshman year to uh, join a honor society that's part of the school for the top 3% of freshmen are invited to join this society. And part of the application process asks for two peer recommendations, which I thought was strange, you know, why would the school think my 18-year-old doormate had anything to say about my academic achievements that would make me a good fit for this organization? But it turns out their real purpose was part of the secret induction ceremony. So my friends knowing me after they had found out what their role was to be, which was to wake me up at like five in the morning one morning and bring me to the token monument on campus of this group and uh, be inducted as, as the sun comes up in our pajamas all surprised. My friend said, Katie, that's really early. To be frank, we're not super excited about doing it. And frankly, we don't see you getting up anyway <laughs> if we show up at your door. So what do you think? Are, are, do you want to do this? Um, they knew I prioritized sleep, certainly above accolades. <laughs> and so I said, no, you know, it would have looked good on a resume, but that's really early, <laughs> just not worth it. Um, and I, I should have known better, but I got a knock on my door the morning of the induction ceremony. And of course, there's that Johnny Cash line, I'd smoked my mind the night before. My freshman dorm room, just, you know, a billow of cigarette smoke opened as my mom came in to say hi. And the, and the um, organizers of this induction uh, ceremony had invited my mom down to surprise me. And she had shown up first thing bright and early, and as my name was called, 
only crickets answered. Um, and, the, and the organizers told her, oh, well, we told two people to get her up. I'm, I'm so sorry. And my mom was like, it's, I'm sure it's not their fault. <laughs> I'm sure Katie was just very difficult to rouse. And she was partially, <laughs> that was partially true. Um, I continued to kind of just skate by and still do very well. Uh, I remember my roommate marveling one, one semester, I wrote two 20-page research papers in three days, just um, and she would just shake her head, like, I've been working on this for weeks. Um, but again, it, it only reinforced this, this inherent laziness that I already kind of lean into. So my mom did come down again for another awards ceremony my senior year. I was uh, graduating cum laude, but in my laziness had missed out on the magna. And so while I was at this banquet hall watching the other students that I really admired who were smart and work hard get recognition, I felt horrible. And I, and I went home that night with my mom and I remember crying bitterly because I was such a loser and I you know, had nothing to offer and, and down the rabbit hole of depression I went. Um, I, I remember this scenario with my mom because, you know, moms are always who we go back to to throw our tantrums. <laughs> I have a new son and I've noticed my main role is to be the receiver of his tantrums <laughs> as the mother. And, and I have recently lost a big contract. It was, um, I have a, I've had some health problems and whatnot over the few years. I've had a couple false starts. So this was a really exciting contract and I, and I lost it. And I was once again just crying bitterly to my mom. You know, why do I even try? Why do I even try? There's no point. And luckily it coincided with the start of this season of Hearsay with a gold star show. And it was easy and the timing was right for me to reflect on. I try because no matter how hard it is to fail when you've given something your all, no matter how hard it is for people to tell you you're not good enough, it's nowhere near as bitter as knowing that you robbed yourself of an opportunity because you didn't try. And I'm so thankful that I am past that place where laziness rules gold star or not. In this next story, I consider if I was as ready to compete in a high school gymnastics conference meet as I thought I was. Hi, I'm Karen, I used to be a gymnast. When my friend's husband found out about my high school athlete past, he told me that if I meet a guy who is of interest to me, I should lead with that. <laughs> and a great idea in theory, I suppose, but I never followed through with that, uh, not the least of which because now that I'm in my 40s, I can say that I have exactly two gymnastics moves that I can do. I can do a cartwheel, and I can talk about how I used to be a gymnast. <laughs> I also don't want to set anyone up to assume that I was an elite gymnast because I was not even a little bit elite. I was self-taught, or more accurately, sister-taught. She was older, 
She couldn't get her body to move in the way that gymnasts' bodies move, but she was able to help me discover how I could get my body to move that way. So much of my childhood summers were spent on the front and back lawns doing round-offs and flip-flops and cartwheels and somersaults and walking on my hands and just basically perfecting my status as a backyard gymnast. Uh, it never occurred to me to ask my parents for more intensive training outside of the home, but I really had no aspirations to be nationally competitive or to get expert opinion on how, you know, from the coaches who used to be gymnasts themselves. I was really just content to be a backyard gymnast. And truth be told, I actually kind of thought I was a badass because I could flip-flop my way all the way across the schoolyard and I had never had a formal lesson. But once in high school, even though I thought I deserved better just for being you know, a natural, um, I was relegated to the freshman team because I wasn't really ready for competition. I had no finesse, I had no polish. Um, I needed to learn how to gain a competitive edge. So I mostly took that lump with grace. I mean, really, I, again, my natural ability, I was just, I was a powerhouse. I had, you know, the big gymnast thighs and could do the floor and the vault type activities, but beam and balance, uh, excuse me, balance beam and bars, yikes, I, I was very hesitant and not comfortable on those. So in that season on the freshman team, I learned quite a bit about technique and competition and patience in the face of monotony. You see, freshman teams had to do compulsories, which means every single freshman competitor at every single team had to do the exact same routine at every single meet for the duration of the season. The floor routine was awful, and I'm gonna try to recreate it without knocking the microphone down. Not, not the whole routine, of course. So that was just the first two seconds. It was horrible. And imagine, again, every single competitor on every single freshman team doing that for the duration of the season. When, when, when our season ended, I was so happy. But the end of freshman season isn't the end of girls' gymnastics. The upper-level competitors still had their conference meets to determine who would go on to regionals and then sectionals and then state. And as we were loading the bus so early one winter Saturday to go support the junior varsity team for their conference meet, Coach Bueno got on the bus with his clipboard and he announced that our short roster was a little shorter because Nancy called and said she had the stomach flu. Now, about a month before this meet, Nancy was doing a tumbling pass, kind of just freaked out midair and landed flat on her back. And I really think that she just got spooked because honestly, she never came back for another season after that. But now we had an opening on the team for this competition and Coach Bueno said, all right, Karen, you're doing floor and vault. Vault, oh yeah, of course, floor, that's a little more complicated. You see, JV gymnasts got to choreograph their own routines to music of their choosing. And there was no way I was going to do that piano dinking freshman compulsory do 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 do. Not at a bigger meet like that. I, actually, not even just no, hell no. 
So, I mean, this was my time to shine. I was going to be the girl in the teen movie, but instead of taking off my glasses and, <gasps> she's beautiful, it was going to, I was going to perform my on-the-fly routine, and everyone was going to say, <gasps> she's so good. I was going to show them that tens of thousands of dollars and hours upon hours of elite training at a super fancy gym really didn't mean anything if you had the will and the moxie and if you had the self-perception of being a bad mother shut your mouth. <laughs> I was called upon to compete. I was ready. I was going to tear down this idea that I needed technical training and just say I have the self-image of a champion. So I had two options. Take Nancy's music, which, is, which was an excerpt from the overture from Tommy by The Who, and see if someone on the team could teach me her routine. Or I could spend all the pre-meet practice hours choreographing my own to that same music. I had a point to prove that latter was the more challenging, so yes, I was going to choreograph a routine that felt like mine. So the second we got to Mundelein High School, I immediately got to work on getting that gasp. She's so good. I played Nancy's competition cassette on my Walkman over and over again, stopping, rewinding, choreographing, replaying, replaying. Oh, wait, no, shit, okay, yeah, so then I'm going to do this, and oh, no, 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 wait, I'm going to do this instead. Yeah, 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 okay, yeah. For hours, I laid this thing out. All my tumbling passes, all my basic skills that had to be in there, all my dance moves to transition between it all. Now, gymnastics is a sport that demands perfectionism, like to the micro level of, hey, you're upside down, but is your hair in place? So everything had to be spot on. I barely talked to anyone. I didn't even really talk to my coach because I didn't have time for that. I half-assed my vault practice because I just wanted to think about floor. So a couple hours later, the meet finally begins. Holy shit, the nerves, the excitement, the beating heart. And then finally, it was my turn to go on the floor. So the judge signals me to give me permission to enter the mat. I signal back, do my proud gymnast walk to the middle of the mat, and I take my opening dance pose. Now, the music starts slow, so I do my, you know, my little fancy moves here, and then I kind of sashay my way to the corner of the mat, do my very first tumbling pass, round off, flip-flop, 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 backflip, land it, nail it. I can hear my team wildly cheering, and then blank. Do you know the overture from Tommy? <laughs> so the excerpt that I was working with, um, after that first tumbling pass, it got to the, the part of the music where it goes, and what was going through my head was, fuck, I forgot what I am doing. Oh my fucking God. Okay, do a front walkover. And that's what I did for two and a half minutes. I got my tumbling passes in, and I got my awkward dance moves in, but every time I got stuck, I said, all right, fuck, I'm doing a front walkover, and I got stuck a lot. <laughs> and it's two and a half minutes is conceivably interminable. <laughs> so mercifully, the song finally ended, and I flared my way into my closing pose, and I signaled to the judge that I was leaving the mat, which was really get me the hell off this thing. 
Um, and I just dazed. I walked straight to my team's bench, sat down, caught my breath, had a sip of water, and I just said, I have no idea what I just did. <laughs> Mid-afternoon, as the conference was winding down and all the competitors had competed on floor, our scorekeeper showed something to Coach Bueno, and they busted out laughing. And then Mr. Bueno came right over to me and gave me a hug because our conference was so bad that that parade of front walkovers earned me a fourth place ribbon. <laughs> so, a ribbon I placed. I got called up to the podium to collect a fourth place ribbon. What's a fourth place ribbon? Is that a thing? <laughs> like, has there ever been a movie made where, you know, the, the athlete overcomes adversity and he triumphs to go collect his fourth place ribbon. Is it legal to slow clap for a fourth placer? So sure, we always tell ourselves there's always next year, but for me, there was not a next year. I mean, I kept doing gymnastics, but I never became elite. I never got a slow clap, never got another award. And I stuck with it all four years, so naturally I got better. I learned new skills, I became more confident, I learned how to have better recall in the face of extreme nerves. In junior year, I earned a varsity letter and I was co-captain my senior year, but everybody else got better too. And my team and I were just never good enough, never trained enough to be competitive against the top schools. But never once did I consider quitting. I didn't even feel a little bit bad the one year when uh, at an invitational, our team came in 32nd out of 34 teams. <laughs> I was content with my natural abilities to keep being that backyard gymnast who just happened to find herself a gym. So obviously, my gymnastics career ended with my high school graduation, and there was no letdown to be felt in this award being a one-off, really. I had three more years to celebrate that I had the opportunity to flip in the air and defy gravity by the sheer force of my muscles, not for the glory of reward, but simply because it was something that I liked to do. Thank you. Daniel Stewart did not fall for the pigeon drop, but not because he'd outwitted the scammer. So I'm uh, standing on Broad Street in North Philadelphia uh, on the outskirts of Temple University where I've just finished my day where I've been um, a teaching assistant and I've spent some time in the library and now it's the, and now it's the afternoon and it's, I'm ready to head back home. I'm heading south. And um, as I'm, just as I'm about to head off, someone, I feel a little tap on my arm and, this, and I turn around and there's this sort of small, nervous looking man there and he's holding a, a brown paper sack, sort of the kind you'd have to hold your lunch. And he, um, he's saying, did you drop this? And he's unfolding it. And I'm like, no. And he says, are you sure? And he opens it up and he looks inside. And then he shows it to me. And the bag is full of money. <laughs> now, um, to make sense of what happens next, I should really should just go ahead and admit up front that in my life, nobody has ever described me as um, worldly or streetwise. Um, <laughs> My mother tended to, she would tend to school me, I really ought to get some common sense. But I was a, you know, I was a small town guy. I came by this sort of 
I guess, naivete, uh, sort of honestly, because both of my parents came from small towns. I mean, my mother came from a small town in a different country, but still small towns. I grew up in a small town, and I went, you know, I, I grew up in Green Hills, which is this little village north of, north of Cincinnati. And it was the place where it was peaceful, sort of to the edge of boring, you know? I, I, I mean, nobody, there's, the kids didn't seem to be bad, they seemed to be more mischievous. And, um, you know, I, I didn't find out about the murder until, much, until many years later. <laughs> but I had spent my whole life sort of in this small town atmosphere. Then when I decided to go to grad school, I um, accepted the, the, the post uh, at Temple University, which is in Philadelphia. And I thought, well, if I'm going to go to school in Philadelphia, then I want to live in the city. You know, so I want to be a city dweller. So, um, you know, my then girlfriend, now wife, and I got an apartment in Center City, as, as Philadelphians call the downtown. But I have to say that my first experience of the city, I was, I'm sure, sort of the the golly sort of rube walking around. Like the first time when I wanted to walk up to Temple's main campus where the, you know, all the undergraduates were. Um, I, I took out my AAA map and Philadelphia is in a nice grid. So I thought, well, it's a very easy, it's mostly north and a little bit to the west. Even though it's a grid pattern, I mean, I'm not good with directions, but I, but I had a map and it's a nice grid. And I still got sort of lost. And I, and I felt, when I finally arrived on campus, it was with a great sense of relief. And I talked to somebody and I said, it was so weird. I mean, I was walking through the neighborhoods east of here, you know, through North Philly. And there, there didn't seem to be any people. And I was looking, there was no, like, there was no street sign. So I just sort of turned and I was glad that I ended up, in, I ended up on campus. And they just sort of chuckled a little bit and they say, well, there were people around, but you should understand that the drug dealers take down the street signs so the police get lost. <laughs> so I was sort of, I was wearing my you know, bright yellow backpack going around like little Danny going to grad school. <laughs> so, so th I mean, this is a couple years later. So I mean, I have a little more experience in the city, but again, you know, not, still not streetwise. When this guy comes up to me and he's holding this paper bag and I only can, you know, glimpse inside, you know, and I can, but, and I, you know, I'm studying history, not math. But I can do the quick calculation and I can see those rolls and it's all in the 20s and I'm like, that is easily $1,000. There's probably more like $5,000 in there and he crumples it up and he says, is that, did, did you, you must have dropped this, right? No, man, that's not mine. Oh. Well, do you think, do you think we can find the owner? I'm like, I don't think, what are you going to do? Ed? Hey, did you drop a lot of money? <laughs> what does it look like? You know, who's on the 20, you know? So and he's, he's saying, well, you think, you think we should keep it? Is it legal to keep it? Which I hadn't actually thought about, because if you find like a $5 bill on, you know, on the, you think, well, that's lucky, I, I have $5, but what if, what if you find 5,000? Are you allowed to keep that? And he's like wondering, and he's talking really quietly, and he seems really nervous. You know, he's just sort of a small, skinny guy, and he seems really nervous, which I guess because, you know, we don't really know each other, and he's talking quietly because there's all these people around. And he's holding this big bag of a lot of money. And he's talking to me and he's saying, well, maybe we should split it up. And I'm like, man, I, you found it, not me. Isn't that your money? And he says, well, I know, that, I know this guy. You know, he works in a law office. It's a little bit north of here. You know, it's like a couple of stops. And I could be there real fast. I'm like, well, that's good. 
And he's, he's, so, he's sort of like, he's looking at me, and he's talking really fast, and I'm having a little hard time keeping up because I'm sort of surprised, you know, I'm not really in the mindset. I'm just at the end, you know, beginning of my commute mindset. And he's talking to me, and he's nervous. And he seems, there's like all these awkward pauses where he's sort of, it's sort of like where you're waiting for somebody to say something, and I'm really not saying anything because I'm just sort of, well, it's interesting that you found that giant bag of money. Um, but it, it's your money. I don't really see how it involves me. I mean, I guess it's your lucky day. But he's talking about, like, well, he has to, it'd be dangerous to get on the subway, to go there, and maybe, you know, he should leave the money with me. And I look honest, and I'm thinking, well, there's a phone right over there. You know, this is the 90s, so everybody doesn't have cell phones. I'm like, there's a, there's a phone right over there. You could, you could probably call him. You could probably call him and ask. He doesn't look really happy at my suggestion. I'm thinking, this is, like, this is like a good idea, you know? It really solves the problem that he's presenting to me. And so I walk, I'm like, I think I even got some change. And I'm reaching in my pocket, and I got like a, I got like a, a quarter and a dime. And I'm walking over, and he's like re really reluctantly following me over. And then when I pick up the phone, you know, somebody's like put glue or, or gum or something, so I can't, get the, I can't get the coins in there. So I'm like, oh, man, the phone's broken. I'm sorry about that. And he's sort of, for some reason, it looks sort of relieved. You know, and he starts taking, well, he, maybe he can take, you know, he, maybe he could leave it with me just for saving you because it's not safe. And I'm like, you could take a cab. <laughs> you know, they, they don't get you there. I mean, that's, that's reasonably safe, probably safer than, some, than standing on the street with a bag of money. <laughs> I think this is even, this is also a good idea. But instead, he's like starting to going on about how we're going to split the money. And for my effort, you know, I probably should get like a thousand. I'm like, a thousand dollars? Man, a, a cab's going to be a lot cheaper than that, you know? <laughs> um, and I, see, I'm just not, I'm just sort of not getting something. I mean, I understand he's nervous, but I'm just sort of not getting something here. And he eventually realizes I'm just not getting something here. <laughs> and um, so... He just sort of stops talking, and I say, well, um, I, guess you'll, I guess you'll figure it out, right? Because you probably need to you know, look for the owner or something, because he'd been saying something about me. You need, you need to put notices, and after so many days, you, maybe you can get to keep it. And Okay. So we're just sort of there silently on the sidewalk, and I say, well, good luck. Shake hands. And then he just goes and takes the bag in the subway anyway. So I'm like... So I'm walking home, and I'm like, well, that was, that was sort of weird. And I don't really think much more about it until a couple days later when I'm walking, when, when I'm watching the local news, which I don't do a lot of. And there's this mention of somebody being arrested outside of a one of the universities in West Philadelphia. You see, he'd been going up to people with a paper bag that he said was full of money. And then by the end of the whole transaction, the person was left holding this paper bag full of money. And they'd given over a couple hundred dollars, you know, just to show good faith, you know, because we all trust each other, but we want a little symbol of something while somebody went to check on something. And then after maybe half an hour, they would get a little suspicious, and they would open it up, and there would be just newspaper cut in the bag. They would be left literally holding the bag. And, and, the, and the newspaper reporter said that this is a con. It was called the pigeon drop. It was a classic. And I thought, well, first, I thought it was sort of strange. I was almost on the news, in a way. <laughs> but um, it was really weird because 
because I mean, I hope you, you get the point that um, I didn't lose any money, but I also totally did not outsmart the con. <laughs> um, I fell for the con and yet did not lose any money. And that was a sort of a weird thing that, that's, it was a, one of those oddities that you sort of think, huh, and it lodges in the back of your brain. And I actually got the, the next piece to make it fit um, maybe about a year later, actually back up on campus when I was again at TA for a class, and it was the American History Survey. It was for one of the senior faculty, and he was telling these undergraduates all the stuff that I'd never heard myself and all the stuff I didn't know. And the piece that finally brought it into focus for me was when he was talking about the Erie Canal. Now, the Erie Canal, he was explaining, was this, you know, canal. It was built and completed in 1825, connected the Hudson River to Lake Erie doesn't seem like a big deal. It was a major deal because for the first time, I mean, it connected the Hudson River to New York City, to the Atlantic, to the world, and through the Great Lakes, the entire sort of upper part of the country. It opened up basically this part of the country to the globe. Food began flowing out of here, machines began flowing in, and more than that, people began flowing in people by the thousands and then the tens of thousands, all traveling along the Erie Canal heading west. So in upstate New York where the, where the canal went through, well, in this world where you expect that you would probably know a couple of hundred people in your life, well, suddenly now you were seeing hundreds of people, new faces every week, and a lot of the people you knew were heading out. You were never gonna see them again. It was a new kind of world. It was the modern world that we recognize, but it was so upsetting to, to the people then that they turned, a lot of them turned to religion to try to figure it out, the religious revival. So that's why we got the Mormon church. It arose like two years after the Erie Canal was open. Joseph Smith said he found, you know, the Book of Mormon. You know, we have the Mormon church. We have the Seventh-day Adventists. We have, we have um, the, the growth of the woman suffrage movement. It changed like everything. It also introduced as he was explaining to the, to the undergraduates, the first, the first confidence man who appeared on one of these lodging places along the Erie Canal. And he would show up in one of the lodging houses where people stayed, and he would come and sit next to, you know, some single man who was traveling alone. And they would begin to talk. And they would have a really nice time. And finally the con man would say, isn't it really nice that here we are two total strangers We've been surrounded by strangers the whole time. And we feel like we really know each other, like we could really trust each other. You know, just because I think you're a really trustworthy guy, here, I'm gonna give you my pocket watch. And tomorrow, I'm gonna trust that tomorrow you're gonna come back and bring it back to the same place and give it back to me. Pocket watches are really valuable things for, some, for, for somebody. So the, the person who he was talking to would feel so wonderful, feel that sense of warmth over it, that he would give his own pocket watch in return. He would sort of note that he was giving a gold pocket watch for a tin one. But you have to believe in something, right? Well, the thing, if you think about a confidence man, people who steal things are named after the thing that they steal. Jewel thieves steal jewelry. Confidence men, they steal your confidence. They don't just take your money, they take your sort of faith and things. So 
by being the target of this and actually several cons in the city, it made me think about the nature of the confidence trick. We have the saying, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on who? Well, you think about it, it's because you're supposed to harden yourself, you're supposed to be tough, you're not supposed to be vulnerable. But when you're faced with a choice of whether you're going to trust somebody, somebody you don't really know, and you know, after you've been hurt a few times, and you have to face that fact of, are you going to make yourself vulnerable? To me, it really comes down at the end of the con. When you're facing something that may be a person you like and trust, or it may be somebody who is there to steal, to, to, to con you, to steal your confidence, it becomes a matter of, well, in the end, what is the most valuable thing you have? Because I don't think it's a gold pocket watch. So, thanks very much. Once she mastered academics, it was time for Jen Loop to take on sports. When I was thinking of Gold Star, I think of, I thought of, you know, the little foil gold stars that uh, Jordan talked about, and I never had much use for those. You know, you use them for, you know, saying in elementary school, kid shared today, or teaching your kid potty training, you get a gold star. Those things never accumulated to anything tangible for me. So when I was thinking about something that actually is valuable, I'm thinking about gold, the best, right? So in history, gold is something that was sought after. This is what we base our currency on. It's rare, it's valuable, and it's given to the people that are the best at something. As I went through this, I thought of sports. So similarly to Katie, um, I've been good at things, most things that I've done in my life, and I'm not saying I'm the best at everything ever, but academics came easily. Um, music was something I could enjoy and do well. The thing I identified when I was very young was anything that had to do with physical movement I was not good at. Now, I was the kid in elementary school that dreaded gym days. I mean, they, they, they really weighed on me. I was a pretty anxious child. And so the days that we'd have parachutes or the little yellow scooters where it was just fun and we didn't have to compete against ourselves or against others were the days I looked forward to. I even hated um, this game we played around here called I Grew Up in Traverse called Pizza where it was this tag game where all the kids would line up on one side of the gym and then there were kids in the middle and they would tag you as you ran as fast as you could to the other side. To me, this was terror. This was like primal fear, you know? The kids are chasing you and then like you have to stand there and it was, it, it was really probably the worst time <laughs> that I, or the worst thing that I had going on in my life. But one thing I was motivated to do that I was not intrinsically good at was look for friends and seek out social interaction. We're a social species, I wanted to fit in and I wanted to um, feel good about that. So in fourth grade, I joined the track team. Now, everyone's on the track team in fourth grade. There's pretty much something anyone can do. I was pretty middling, so I got assigned to the 400 meter dash, which it's not for fast people, and it's not for people who have endurance skills. It's basically where they put all the kids that aren't really like doing anything, because you know you can just run and that's fine. 
Now, I didn't have a lot of anxiety about it because I was just there for friends, right? So this wasn't something I was trying for. This wasn't something I really needed to do for myself until I got to the first meet. Now, the way they did meets here is this is your first taste of meeting kids from other elementary schools. These kids become your peers in junior high and high school, and you know, you think of the like cute blonde that's across town, or like that girl's really good at this, and so you know, these things accumulate, and so it's more social anxiety for me. Um, I remember getting to the meet, and I remember the track and that red rubber you know, um, surface and starting and feeling pretty fine about it. It's a staggered start. Lots of different kids in this one, too. And it was about halfway through when I realized, yeah, everyone was pretty much done. Um, I continued on. I'm surprised I didn't throw down or throw myself down and have a fit because little nine-year-old nine me probably could have done that pretty well. Um, but I remember as I was, you know, just finishing that last, you know, quarter of the track, oh my gosh, what's the point of this? I am certainly not doing this again. So, absolutely decided I was quitting. Now, my mom worked at the elementary school where I was. She was a chapter aide, and so I spent a lot of time in the office. I would help file papers. I knew all the, like, I'm thinking of the mailboxes they had, these wooden mailboxes where all the teachers had their stuff, and so I decided I was quitting. I wrote a note. I went to the office at the end of school, and... I said, Mom, I'm quitting, and I'm going to, you know, just put this here for the coach. And uh, she said, I don't, I don't know why this is why she chose, or this is the moment she chose, but she said, oh, most certainly you are not. If you are quitting, you are going to give it to her in person. And she very seldom put these boundaries on me. So this was, this was a shocking thing. I think looking back, she was trying to, like, make me not quit because I would be so upset at having to do that that I just would give up and then continue to do track. Well, no, I was a pretty stubborn kid, and I decided I wasn't good at it, I wasn't going to do it, and game over. So I marched into that, that practice, which had already started, all the kids in the little carpeted gym on the bleachers, and I walked right up to her, and I, her name came to me today, I think it was Mrs. Arnold, um, the track coach, and I said, nope, I'm quitting, and we're done. And I walked out. And it was enough to, I, I so much did not want to try that it was enough that could, it, it surmounted my, my anxiety. Well... As I was growing up, um, same thing, junior high, high school, no sports. Not doing anything that actually requires me to try it, something that I'm not good at. I did flags for a brief stint because all my friends were in marching band. Wasn't very good at that, but it didn't matter because that was social. Then um, I ended up working at the Clinch Park Zoo after college, and this was something that motivated me because it required physical strength. I had to haul 40-pound grain bags and you had to walk around all day and you had to actually, you know, move and be able to deal with, with the animals. And so this gave me a little extra outside motivation to actually care about being physically active. Um, after that, I discovered I, lo I loved hiking. Um, I can backpack for 15 miles a day with a 40-pound pack. I just like to go. So I had to figure out the right things to get me into that. So, as I'm 34 now, this year I decided, okay, I'm going to try sports. Uh, I picked up tennis. I'm not very good, but I learned that I can get better if I try, which is an amazing concept. Um, <laughs> so, I, I joined um, NMC's Taekwondo program uh, this semester. And these are a bunch of 
18 and 20 year olds, very excitable, very, very athletic. And, you know, some of them have already bought their uniforms already. And this is once a week. And of course, the instructor says this is the most advanced class he's had in years. And I'm the one that's that's sitting back and I don't have the memory for it and I have to go over, you learn patterns and forms and I have to go over them so many more times than these kids do, young, young people. Um, but I was there two weeks ago and we were holding bags um, as we were practicing front kicks. And so I'm holding this bag for this you know, gentleman who's probably two feet taller than me and he's pushing me backwards three or four inches every single time he kicks and I'm like, gosh darn it, I'm standing here and Kudos to the instructor. It's a really good program. He's not giving me any slack. He's like, nope, just, you know, lower and you can hold this. And I was kicking for, um, for my partner. And after we were done, he said, nice job, ma'am. Now, ma'am is built... <laughs> <laughs> Ma'am is built into the courtesy here. So I, was, I wasn't going to take too much offense at this point. But it was, nice job, ma'am. You have a very powerful kick for someone your size. <laughs> I just wanted to, the sarcastic me wanted to be like, thanks, kid. But some part of me at that point almost wanted to hug him, like break protocol and be like, no, really, thanks, kid. Um, it, at this point, I'm just giving myself that gold accomplishment star for learning the value of trying to earn a gold star. In our final story, Nancy Baker tells us that if there could be a pastry class valedictorian, she was on a mission to seize that title. So the gray squirrel clutched the small shred of my cake in its claws. Its tiny mouth was frantically chewing, but nothing else on it was moving. It had taken me all morning to make this cake. Three layers of French genoise and a bucket of accompanying buttercream. It was something that I was going to make for a friend's engagement party. I was actually being paid to do this by his mother, so it really had to be good. So it was gonna be this tremendous cake. And the project had gone really well until my west-facing kitchen got pretty hot in May. I didn't expect it to get that hot that day. And I had to move this cake outside to cool for a minute because if you've ever made a cake and tried to frost it, you know that if you try to put icing on a hot cake, it quickly devolves into something very similar to buttering hot toast. Doesn't really work. So I moved the layers out onto my porch for just a minute to get them completely cool. And then all of a sudden I heard this little noise. And I look out and I see this squirrel sitting on top of one of the layers of cake with a hunk of it in its claws. So I had two thoughts go through my head in that moment. One was, where the hell is a BB gun when you need it? And the other one was, what would Michelle do now? Now, I met Michelle Tournier two years earlier when I had signed up for a pastry class. It was, I was supposed to be on a six-week maternity leave, um, but the leave part hadn't gone too well for me. I loved my baby loved him like everyone loves their child, but I didn't love leaving my job. I really longed for the company of other adults, going out to lunch, sitting in meetings, things like that. 
Um, and this time was really challenging probably for my husband too, because after all, he had to come home to me every day. And I would meet him at the door and sort of frantically try to vicariously live the corporate life through him and say, you know, what did you do today? Did you have any cool meetings? What did they say? What did you say? Did you do a PowerPoint? Did you go to lunch? What did you order? <laughs> so one night, in an attempt to sort of distract me and calm me down for at least 90 minutes, he rented a video called Babette's Feast for us to watch. Now, Babette's Feast is a 1987 movie that is considered the mother of all food movies. It puts all of the others to shame. And it was just really beautiful, and when the lights came back on, he looked at me and he said, hey, you know what? You have always loved to bake. Why don't you do this? Call the babysitter that you've organized for the end of maternity leave, have her start sooner, and go take one of those classes at the local culinary school. There was a culinary school in our town of Evanston, Illinois, and he said, you know, it, just go take a class and you'll be really happy. It'll really work out. Um, so I stared at him the way my dog stares at people when they're eating cheese. I mean, the stupefied wonder of what it could be was almost more than I could stand. So by 10 o'clock the next morning, oh man, I had signed up all right. I had signed up for a three-course, nine-month pastry chef certification program. It was going to be a snap. I would start class every morning at 5 a.m. It would finish at 9 a.m. I would run to the bathroom, change out of my chef's whites into my business attire, drive like a bat out of the hell 15 miles down the road to Kraft's headquarters and be at my desk by 10 a.m. I would just tell Kraft that I wanted to start flex time for a little while and it'd only be nine months, right? Piece of cake. So on the first day of class, I met my instructor, Michelle. He walked up and down the aisles of the classroom kitchen, sort of inspecting us all as new pastry plebes. He tried to deduct any kind of shortcomings from us, uh, flip-flops instead of wearing black shoes, a stain on our double-breasted uh, uniform. He was the real deal, pastry chef-wise. He was a French master pastry chef, and someone who had actually achieved a designation um, I do not speak French, but I'm going to try to do this correctly. Uh, he was achieved the meilleur ouvrier de France. Now, this is the highest national honor you can get as a chef. It's an exhausted three-day exam. It's only given once every four years, and every year, every time it's given, about five people pass. So this meant that only about 200 French master pastry chefs exist in the world, and he was one of them. And it gave him the right to forever wear the blue, the white, and the red stripes on his collar. And it's such a high designation, as a matter of fact, if you wear this in France without actually achieving the honor, you are considered a fraud, and it is punishable by imprisonment. So it's a big deal. Now, Michel was in his late 50s, but he had already logged in more than 40 years since his apprenticeship, which started at the age of 14. He started in some basement bakery in Toulouse, where for three months he wasn't allowed to do anything but sit in a corner on a stool and peel apples for the tartartan that they were famous for. It was sort of the French version of Mr. Miyagi with wax on, wax off before he was allowed to actually start to be a pastry chef. So he didn't mind putting us through a little hazing, and his opening remarks were a literal exercise in, pardon my French, 
So he comes up to us and he says, good morning, class. You tired? It's pastry. We work in the dark to make the bread and desserts. So by lunch and dinner service, everything is great. You will be at your station every morning, 5 a.m. 5.01, I close the fucking door. If you are locked out and you knock, I will come in the hall and kill you. <laughs> you are late more than once, you are fucking finished. I don't have time for bucket heads. Now, you pay attention, you will learn to make French pastries. We do not make big, ugly, American Betty Crocker shit with six layers and three inches of frosting. We make quality French pastry here. Now, elite, let's go to work. And that was Michelle. So as I watched him stomp away in his clogs, the first time I had ever seen a man wear clogs, this was 1990, a, a what the hell have I done moment occurred to me, but something else came over me too. I wanted to be just like this crazy little Frenchman, and I wanted to be first in this fucking class. Now, this wasn't a totally new sensation. I had been an overachiever in high school, one of those nebbishy little nerds that everyone hates who perpetually knew their exact class rank and liked to order a lot of, or organize a lot of study groups. But things kind of changed for me in college. I, you know, cut back on study time, and wow, my whole social life opened right up. I met colorful new people who convinced me that there were a lot of things to learn outside the class as well as inside the class, and I got a little bit lazy. But Michelle reawakened that A student in me. I wanted to be first in the class, so I set my sights on pastry chef valedictorian, if that is a thing, and I'm pretty sure it's not. <laughs> so I started going above and beyond in a way that was ridiculous. I actually gave myself homework. And believe me, pastry classes do not require homework. I foisted practical pastries on my neighbors and husband to critique them until they became unsupportive, greeting me on their doorsteps with reluctance as one might meet a Jehovah's Witness bearing a soccer tort. <laughs> the curriculum was challenging and quite un-Montessori-like un in its pedagogical approach. Michelle would approach my station stare as I invariably screwed something simple up, and he would say, that's shit, throw it away. <laughs> One poor guy mixed up baking powder and baking soda for a wedding cake assignment and then mistakenly quadrupled the salt of the cake. We all watched in quiet horror. As Michelle took a large bite of this suspicious looking cake, then spit it out as if it had contained broken glass. Holy fuck, you buckethead, he said. Are you trying to poison me? So the months passed, and I ended up with getting the highest marks in the class, but no one cared much, not even me. Michelle casually mentioned it to me in passing right before the final exams. Hey, sweetie, your grades are first in class. Try not to fuck up the practicals, okay? <laughs> I knew no matter what the numbers said, though, that these younger students were actually my superiors. As I hung up my apron every morning at 9 a.m. finishing class, they had two more classes to go to each day. Most of them headed downtown to hotels where they worked as waitstaff or uh, chefs themselves just to pay their tuition. And most of them viewed breads and pastries as sort of a minor prissy detail 
in a crushing curriculum that included more things like meat utilization, wine studies, and restaurant operations. They didn't need to perfect their pastries. They were excellent at everything else. They were tatted and talented. They were culinary rock stars in training. And they had all the kitchen creds and battle wounds that I would never possess. One guy was missing the tip of his finger. They could swear in perfect kitchen Spanish. And they had asbestos hands that were so calloused they could pull sheet pans out of the oven without oven mitts and not even flinch. They, not I, would be Michelle someday. Which brings me to my standoff on my porch. What would Michelle do? So I stepped forward ever so slightly, but the frightened squirrel ran across my three cake layers and jumped into a next door tree chattering loudly at me. In a moment of relief, I saw that none of the layers looked damaged except for the one bite that he had taken out of it. But then I realized that the squirrel had relieved himself in a profuse stream across each layer of cake as he exited. <laughs> Apparently, I had scared the piss out of him. <laughs> now what to do? I knew that I could frost up that squirrel cake and no one would be the wiser. <laughs> Party guests would stand around enjoying a hefty slice and commenting, huh, Jenny, are you picking up on an unusual flavor here? I don't know, David. It has sort of a nutty taste. I can't quite place it. Hazelnut? Acorn? I... But besides the obvious disgusting nature of the situation, I was also fearful of what wilderness diseases might be carried in squirrel urine. I mean, how could I be sure that the party goers would not end up with parasites or some kind of rodent-based deformities? So I sighed, and I knew what I had to do. I knew exactly what Michelle would do. I quietly cursed the squirrel. I walked back inside. And I threw out the soiled cake and I started making a new one. Because I am a lot of things. A mother, a pastry chef, valedictorian, but I am not a buckethead. Thank you. Nearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to Mike Kurtz and Inside Out Gallery. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.